Hey everybody, how's it going? I'm Chase Jarvis. Welcome to another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. If you have forgotten, this is where I sit down with the world's top creatives, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders and unpack actionable and damn well better be valuable insights with the goal of helping you live your dreams in career and hobby and in life. The big life. Uh, my guest today is James Altucher. First of all, it's very hard to say his last name. Second of all, this is one of those interviews where, I mean, James and I have been traveling in similar circles. I went in just like, I'm going to have an awesome conversation with this guy. And he shocked me. First of all, he, he he tries to hijack the show 10 seconds in. We do a little jujitsu. Um, no, uh, all jesting aside, it's an amazing discussion. He's a super accomplished guy. Um, I think he's written 18 books. That's right, 18 books. That's more books than I think all of the other people who have been on my show <laughs> combined, I think. Um, he also has a, a very popular blog called The Altucher Confidential, a very great podcast that is one of the, I think I have maybe five or six podcasts that update automatically in my podcast thing on my phone, and his is one of them. He was a hedge fund manager, hedge like author, hedge fund, former hedge fund manager. Um, he has started 20 companies, 17 of which have failed. And he, he really orients interestingly around that. For example, he in this episode, he's super critical of what he calls failure porn, which this is the first time I'd heard this concept. Um, it's, it's pure James. He does a great job of, of articulating how and why we celebrate failure or romanticize it as a badge of honor when it's really something that we should <laughs> think more critically about. Uh, his take is a very sophisticated take. I appreciate his POV deeply on this, and I know you will as well. Specifically, this guy is brutally honest. He talks about having $10 million in his bank account from selling one of his three companies that was a non-failure. He goes from $10 million in his bank account to 47 as in not like 47,000 or 4,700 or even 470, as in 47, 10 million to 47 in his bank account. And we uh, recap how that happens and why. Specifically in this episode, you will also take away a daily checklist for items on James's list that he reflects on every day. Uh, we get into some really specific stuff about dealing with anxiety uh, and how to keep anxiety from blocking your performance and moving forward. And uh, another thing I think you guys would find interesting is when we think of ourselves, you've heard of the personal brand, right? That's uh, in this new world where we have to, um, you know, where your future and past employers are all going to have access to you and your information, all your tweets. He does a really good job of articulating how we should even think about ourselves as a business, uh, as sort of like a collection of SKUs. That's right, of like of, of products. And you've heard me say we're all a bunch of hyphens. Um, you know, a photographer, designer, entrepreneur, podcaster, blah, blah, blah. He does a bang-up job of commenting on that. So that's just a little bit of what, what we get into. I know you're going to love this one. Stay tuned. We're going into the show. But before we do, just a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest hub for online creative education. 
education in photo video, art design, music and audio, and the ability to make a living and a life in those disciplines. It's the highest quality, highly curated classes taught by the world's top experts. We're talking Pulitzer Prize winners, Oscar winners, Grammy Award winners, New York Times bestselling authors, and the best entrepreneurs of our time. Names like Richard Branson, Mark Cuban, Ariana Huffington are on the platform. And you get classes taught from guys like Tim Ferriss, Lewis Howes, uh, Ramit Sethi. Again, I could list uh, a thousand other names of the top photographers, designers, musicians, the best in class. You get it. Now, right now, if you're familiar with me and my work, you might be saying, well, wait a minute. Isn't that a company that you started, Chase? Well, yes, it is. In fact, Creative Live makes this entire podcast possible. And in fact, all of my longstanding Chase Jarvis Live shows. Creative Live has millions of students around the world. More than 2 billion minutes of education have been consumed on that video platform. So, you know, that's a little bit of the sort of the what and the how behind Creative Live. But here's the why, which I think is so critical. Creative Live exists to help you live your dreams in career, hobby, and life. In short, I started Creative Live with a bunch of really committed friends because we saw a a big need in the world. We wanted to help our peers and friends and, and folks out there in the world transition to new careers, live new dreams, take the leap, if you will, into an entirely different sort of direction where you can leave that job, maybe your job with the man, and strike out on your own. I also saw my peers in the photo and design world needing to sort of up their skills and get ahead. And I saw friends who were happily working at great companies but wanted to pursue their hobby to a next level that you know might someday parlay into a side hustle. So we built that platform. Uh, these classes at Creative Live are the most highly and authentically produced of any of the online video platforms you'll experience. The top experts, it's all shot with 48 cameras, all in HD, beautifully presented and accessible on desktop, tablet, mobile. You know I stand for quality and that's what Creative Live uh, puts out. To that end, I have also taken it upon myself to curate a handful of my very favorite classes and mix them in with some of the top performing classes on Creative Live. And I'll bake that into a landing page called creativelive.com slash hustle just for you. This community listens to our podcast here. So you should go there and you should check that out as a special thank you for being a podcast listener. If you find a class that you love, either from the ones that I've curated or elsewhere on the site, and you want to buy it, during checkout, enter the code CHASER. That's my name plus an R, just C-H-A-S-E-R. And do that during checkout and you'll get 25% off your order. Uh, I think that's awesome and I hope you do too. So thanks very much for checking it out. Let me know what you think. Now that's it for the sponsors. Uh, Now let's get into the show. Good to be out here. Super good. Thank you for coming Wait, on the show. Chase, are yes. you in the 30 Days of Genius? I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm riding shotgun to all you geniuses. No, so let me, I have to ask you a basic question. Okay. I'm totally naive at this. Okay. What do you look for when you make a good photo? When you want to take a good photo? I would like to be a better photographer. I so look, what should I do? I look for sheer stopping power. What's going to make you stop if you see it without any context? Just stop and look at the picture. So I walk out of here and I'm in the street and I really want to take a good photograph within the next five minutes. Is that like a doable goal or? Absolutely with doable goal. The first thing you need to do is look inside of here and say, what do I care about? And then you need to put your own lens on the thing that you see in the world. I care about people. I care about buildings. I care about nature. I care about something that's going to be your context. And then you're going to try and make a picture that nobody else in the world can make by applying your lens. Thank you. <laughs> but I'm not done questioning you about okay, photographs. Okay, bring it. Bring it. I really want to like leave here and take a photograph. Okay, I can so, help you. So, you said have your filter, and like your filter's people. My filter might be sad people. Okay. So I go outside, there's people leaving work, some of them are sad, some of them are happy. Yes. What, how do, I don't know really what to look for. Like you're a natural at it, so what, 
I don't take photographs. Like, what should I look for to create, like, for me, the best photograph I've ever taken? Well, first of all, I would recommend that you approach, that you not try and snipe somebody from far away because it's very hard to get an intimate picture. Yeah, intimate, it with like an iPhone or whatever. Yeah, sure. I, I would stop this person and say, I'm like, I would, I would approach them and share your story with them. Like, I'm on a mission. I, I'm processing some grief right now. Something, you know, I just looked at you. I, I feel like I had a connection. Do you care if I take your picture real quick? Uh, that's great. I never would have thought of that. Yeah, and so and, you build like almost a relationship, a mini relationship with them. And if you can build that relationship around some sort of mutual connection and trust in a, you know, 10 to 15 seconds, you'll get a much better picture. But aren't they gonna just pose then, like as opposed to you taking it without them knowing? I would actually instruct them on what you want them to do. Like, I don't want, my, my goal here, I'm just trying to connect with other strangers who sort of look like they're carrying on the same emotions that I am. So I'm looking not for you to smile or anything, just, just be you. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a picture and I'll send it to you. I would love so, it. All right, make we'll sure see. he has my cell phone number because I wanna see it on my phone within the hour of you leaving, how about yeah. that? Um, okay, we gotta get a little background on you because, I mean, <laughs> the list of stuff, you. what I left out is you're also a hedge fund manager. Um, you said tw 13 of those 20 have failed or something like that? 17 of the 20. 17 of the 20 yeah. have failed. Uh, Not a pleasant experience. You know, there's sort of like this failure porn that happens on like, in, particularly in Silicon Valley, like, oh, I failed in my first three startups, so now you should put money with me because I'm definitely gonna succeed now. I've been through it. Like, failure just sucks. I don't know if it's ever happened to you. I'm sure oh, it has, sure, happens to everyone. Yeah, of course. But uh, there's nothing good about it. it it's painful. Uh, certainly you learn from, from it, but I feel like there's also this weird thing. I, feel, I forget what Brene Brown calls it. I think it's uh, gold-pated, gold plated grit, which you say, oh yeah, my first startup was a fail, but now I'm a huge success. It's like how you're acknowledging this failure, but you don't say, I failed and I, had, I lost all of my investors' money, I lost my best friend in the process, my wife left me, my, I mean, Wait, no, did you read my book? No. <laughs> but uh, I, like, you just named exactly everything that happened to me. But those, like, people don't, when they talk about failure, especially in Silicon Valley, it's like, oh, yeah, I failed my startup, but boy, look at my new startup now. It's a billion dollar, blah, blah, blah. Brene calls that gold-plated grit. So, presumably, like, let's start off with, uh, it, well, you know that the audience, people who are paying attention, it's, a, it's a, a, an Wait, audience. Wait, we're videotaping this? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's an audience of people who are, Hungry to lean into creativity and entrepreneurship. Um, even if they're, they're working for someone else, they aspire to be more creative or maybe itching to do something. Maybe they want to get a gig on the side. They're, they're creatively curious. Uh, and so ideas of failure, it's, I think that's something that petrifies a lot of the people who are paying attention to show. A lot of folks are like, oh yeah, man, I've, I've struggled with this, 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 and this. But I think if we start off just talking about it really, really openly and clearly it's something you're open about. You've you know failed 17 startups out of 20. So give me the give me the backstory. That's a lot of failure, um, but clearly there's some shit that's working in there. Do you want me to start from Not yesterday backwards or <laughs> beginning forwards? Because uh, there's failures in both yeah. directions. Why don't you? Why don't you? Is it possible to have highlights of failures? Why don't you just give me you know give me some the cliff notes of 17 failed startups? First of all. 17, I don't know anyone who has 17 startups, let alone 20. Well, okay, let's, let's deal with things okay. one sentence at a time. Sure. So you can have a lot of startups if you're really, I am a big believer in experimenting. So you can have a lot of startups if you experiment and give up fast. So I tend to give up as soon as I'm disappointed, which may or may not be a good 
quality. It's probably not such a good quality. I give up probably too easily. I remember one company I started, I raised money. So I raised kind of a friends and family round of about half a million dollars and it was gonna be this dating service roughly based on, roughly on top of Twitter. And I remember I raised the money the day before and then the next day I woke up shaking. Like I was thinking to myself, you know what? This is actually a bad idea. Like just everything about it seemed like a bad idea to me and I could have been right, I could have been wrong. This is the fastest I've ever given up on something. So I wired all the money back that day and shut that down. It took me, you know, I had been developing it for about four or five months, had developers, had people working for me. Or something, yeah. Oh, I, no, the site was functional and working oh, wow. and I just raised, you know, half a million. I could have kept going. Uh, but I thought to myself, you know what? I'm not, I'm not feeling it. I didn't want to have to talk to my investors a year later and disappoint them. Yes. And so I just wired all the money back. No harm, no foul. Uh, one person, I paid their lawyer fees because they had hired a lawyer, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I swallowed what, the money I spent on the developers, and that was it. That was the end of that company. So that was my fastest <laughs> failure. It wasn't, <laughs> really, it wasn't really a failure. I can't really call it that. It was worst failures, but yeah. that's, the, that's, that's how you start 17 or 20 companies. Now, some lasted a lot longer and succeeded or failed that way, and that was more painful, but that was the, the fastest. Let's go, to, let's go to the painful end of the spectrum. If that's the lightest, fastest failure, Fail fast is obviously a, a, a descriptor that, or a, a, I don't know if it's a moniker, but a phrase that you hear often. Uh, what about the opposite in the spectrum? Okay, the I'll, most painful, shitty failure. I'll talk about the first and the most recent. Okay. Okay. So was the, the most recent the most painful? No, because okay. the first was the most painful. Oh, okay. So the most recent actually was not painful at all, even though it was actually a much greater loss in some ways. So. Um, it's because I figured out, well, I'll start with the first. So I had this company and uh, we, it was in the 90s, you know, Internet 1.0, and we were building websites for entertainment companies. So I built the websites for HBO, uh, oh, Miramax, New Line Cinema, Fine Line Cinema, a lot of record labels. As you could tell by how I look, it was all gangster rap labels, so Death Row Records, Bad Boy Records, Loud Records, some Jive, uh, Interscope. Um, so a lot of uh, record labels, um, and of course the, the biggest entertainment company of all, ConEdison.com, based here in New York, the electric company. And uh, uh, so it was a great company. We, the internet was just kind of moving up commercials, and nobody had websites, so part of the sales process was convincing people you actually need a website. And sold that company, made for myself, uh, and, and you'll see why this is not bragging in a second, made for, my, for myself uh, $10 million cash, Never had money, never had a dime of money before. And you know, I paid for uh, all my education, I paid for everything when I moved to New York City, I was living on the floor of someone's apartment, and the whole thing, so then started this company. And with that $10 million cash, I was like the worst drunken rock star on every drug possible. I started, I bought the biggest apartment you could buy. I invested in all the stupidest companies like, you know, social network for left-handed baseball players, like everything (laughs) bad. I had a one company, seriously, one company I invested in was like mobile devices for deaf people. And that company totally failed. I literally, I'm I'm an idiot. I put $2 million into that one, went to zero. The house was right, I remember, it was right on, Church Street, all the way down near Reed, and uh, which I don't know if you know New, yeah. New York very well, but I remember this was in 1999. I asked the real estate agent, "Well, what's going to happen to this place if someone bombs the World Trade Center?" And she said, "Oh, oh you God. can't live your life thinking like that." 
And so after 2001, which is obviously much worse for everybody else than for me, but of course the value of this place went to zero exactly when I was also going broke because I decided to put all this cash into internet companies and stocks and all of those were going to zero. So I just lost everything, went into debt. Uh, just, I remember I had um, uh, $47 in my bank account the day before, and this is after 10 million, $47, uh, two kids screaming, didn't know if the house was gonna close the next day. Uh, my parents refused to lend me money uh, for all sorts of reasons, I'm not blaming them, it was my fault. Uh, and, and it just sucked. So I thought to myself, oh, I got lucky. I won this internet lottery that's never gonna exist again. And I don't know how to do anything else. And that's it, I'm over, I'm gonna die. Wow. So I even, I even looked at my life insurance policy. Where's the, what's the suicide clause? And I was thinking to myself, my kids aren't old enough to know me yet, and they have a $4 million life insurance policy they could benefit from if I sort of do it right now. And, but I didn't do that. Wow, James. Sold the house, uh, didn't, I mean, lost money on that, but enough to move like 100 miles north and try to restart again, and it took years and years to restart. But wow. that was sort of the first, you know, it took years to realize this, you know, I don't have to make this the last word. You know, you get depressed and, it, and it's... Were you, were you depressed? You know, I not mean, depressed in the sense of like clinically depressed. I was depressed because I lost all my money. Yeah, and understandable. I'm just, yeah, like there's, it's a real, I was it's sad. A real <laughs> yeah, of course. And I was anxious. Like I didn't know how am I gonna make another dollar for the rest of my life, particularly after I had that, that you know, immense rush of like making this money, you know, where it's, it's hard to like say then, okay, now I'm gonna start from scratch again because that's what I was doing. And it took two or three years before I could say, look, uh, maybe there's another, you know, maybe I can wake up out of bed now and start doing things. And so I had to have a bunch of failures like that to start to realize, you know what, something really bad is happening to me. Whenever I'm, whenever I'm succeeding, I self-sabotage in some way and I crash again. And this happened like many times where I'd crash back to zero after doing well. So I, I got over the feeling that I couldn't make money. I realized, oh, okay, I know how to do this but I also automatically do this almost immediately. And I had to ask, what am I doing when it's coming down? And what, what am I doing when it's going back up? And it turned out the exact same thing was always working for me when I was going back up, almost like clockwork. So usually I would wait like a year, I'd get depressed for a year thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe this happened again. And then I would start doing what I needed to do to get back up. So about a year ago, uh, about a year and a couple months ago, a friend of mine invited me to the set of, he, he was launching this TV show for Showtime, great show, and I was watching the first episode get filmed. It was before he even got like, you know, he got gotten greenlit before it got really picked up, and it was such an exciting experience to be on the set of a TV show. Like you, I'm sure you've been on the many Looking sets, at, but yeah. for me, Looking I hadn't been. And uh, uh, in the middle of being on the set of this TV show, I got this phone call emergency board meeting of a public company that I was on the board of. So uh, I, I figured, what could be happening? Maybe, maybe something great's happening. Like the company's getting sold and I'm gonna make a lot of money. I had three million shares of this company and it was moving up. Turns out one of the largest shareholders screwed the company out of $90 million and the bank was gonna shut the whole company down. So I had this board meeting within an hour, right in the middle of the day and everybody was looking for me. Oh, we wanna show James this, we wanna show James that. Everyone was looking for me and I'm, I'm kind of hiding in the bathroom on this board call 
and Wells Fargo's got a representative, or some bank's got a representative <laughs> on there. It's okay if we keep it there. Um, and they basically shut the company down. It's a public company, um, billion in revenues, and wow. they sold off everything instantly. Stock went from about three to zero within days. And you know I had millions of shares. So within a day, basically, I'd lost like another, millions of dollars. And again, saw something that I really had put a lot of work into go to zero. And uh, I said, okay, I'm just gonna follow my own advice this time immediately. And the advice is, you know, and it's gonna sound corny and stupid and overly simple, like everybody sells their $5,000 self-help guru packages or whatever, but this just simple approach worked for me. So every day, just simply check the box on, am I doing something for my physical health? Am I doing something for my personal relationships with people? Am I doing something creative? And am I, am I practicing some gratitude, which is kind of a hypey sort of phrase, but just those four things. I have to do it every day, and then I check the box. And it worked. So like, like I never got depressed over this. Uh, it wasn't like, uh, you know, it wasn't like this was meaningless to me. It was actually incredibly yeah, meaningful. Sure, and you know, a lot of people's lives got affected and, and I was disappointed in myself for not being more on top of things. But at least for me personally, I was able to snap back, find other opportunities. In fact, uh, later on I told the um, writers of the show what had happened in the middle of the day when they were trying to find me. And they said, what the heck, we, you, were, you were back to the, the set asking everybody questions, enjoying yourself, it looked like you were having the best day of your life, which it was. And it was even better knowing that this simple practice that had worked for me so much before, but only after a delay, worked for me instantly. Right, let's talk about that practice for a second, because I have almost the same practice. Oh, I do 10. I hope so, because it, it totally, at I, least it works for me. I do 10 things every day, and four of them are basically what you talked about. I meditate every day. Uh, I also have a gratitude practice. I move my body every day, and I do something to facilitate relationship. I, literally all of those things. And when I'm in that space, regardless of what's happening, I feel alive. I feel present. Um, I feel like I can process and deal, sit in emotion, positive emotion and negative emotion. And it, it, I, I, invincible is the wrong word, but I feel, I feel happy, I feel alive, I feel uh, a, a, a powerful human. Yeah, and you know, I, I like the word present, um, even though I think that's also kind of in a, a, yeah, a, a little bit of a catchphrase. Yeah. But um, one thing I learned when I, the faster I start would start or restart doing this practice because I've now kind of kick-started it a bunch of times for myself after different, you know, no matter who you are or where you are, bad things happen. Bad things happen every year. To good people, so, yes. Yeah, to good people, to bad people, doesn't matter. Um, but once I realize, oh, the faster I start this practice, the quicker I snap out of it, and, it, and you have to do it every day. Like, I have to do it today, I have to do it yesterday, I have to do it tomorrow. But um, what I realized Right, the, the, the kind of byproduct of this is you can't ask why. So I couldn't like spend any part of the day saying, why did that happen? Yeah, yeah why, yeah. why did the, I didn't try to contact the guy, why did you do this? You already had like a billion dollars worth of this stock, well, why did you do this? Or why does this always happen to me? Or why didn't I pay more attention? Or blah, blah, blah. You can't ask why, you just have to say, okay, did I you know, walk today, run today, sleep well, eat well? Did I call up my friends or family? Did I write creatively? Uh, for me, for you, just yes, taking photographs sure. or doing this, for me it's writing or, or whatever. Uh, 
And then with gratitude, I don't like, it's too easy for me to say, oh, I'm grateful for, you know, my kids, or I'm grateful to be alive. So that's all fine. Um, I like to do what I call difficult gratitude problems. So what can I be grateful for because yesterday I lost all this money? Or what can I be grateful for I'm stuck in traffic and an hour late uh, to meet Chase? Uh, I can say, well, it's so exciting that I'm, I'm, you know, Chase Jarvis asked me to be on his show and I'm trying to drive into the most popular city in the world. It's very exciting. Life is exciting. So you diff I call those difficult gratitude problems. So I always try to make the, uh, the gratitude difficult. So, almost like a muscle that you're exercising. It, it really is. It is a muscle. And again, you mentioned creativity, uh, like exercise. Oh, there's so many things that we should compare lists at some point. Um, I keep my yeah, list. Yeah, what I, are you, some of the other things I, other than uh, the... I track my stuff. Actually, can you have my phone? Because I'd like to show James that little app that I track. Where is that? My phone is somewhere over there. Um, I drink water every day, at least 64 ounces of water. That's better than me. I don't do that. I'm going to drink water now. Yeah, you should. Right Just remind me. <laughs> um, okay, so I drink 64 ounces of water. Um, I'll give you the actual list from top to bottom here. I use a, a, an app called Habit List, uh, which I find to be super easy to track. Eight hours of sleep. Actually, eight strike, hours of sleep. Eight hours in bed. I'll give. I don't even actually have to be asleep. I try not to be on devices during that eight hours, but eight hours in bed. I meditate in the morning. I meditate in the evening. I try and eat clean, and my definition of eating clean, sometimes it's paleo, I'm pretty clear with myself, just eat clean, and usually that means no fake shit, no like processed foods or whatever. Often it's paleo. I strength train twice a week. Visualization and gratitude. I play, actively play, or make something uh, with I intention. I like play. Play or make, is I put that in one category, that's mm. the creative part. Um, move my body, 64 ounces of water, and Zero to one glasses of red wine. Oh, all right. Zero to one is actually interesting because a lot of it's zero. And for, I would say, for 10 years, um, photography and, and the sort of the touching and entertainment and all that, the world where I lived for a very, very long period of my life, and still do, but I would say I probably had two to five drinks probably five days a week. This is a very social, you know, yeah. I'm eating, I'm eating 90, 95% of my meals out in that time period, et cetera. Um, and so zero to one glass of wine, like I, I'm not against drinking at all, but boy, I, I sleep much better when I have zero to one glasses of wine. I wake up and have a little bit more energy. Than I, I'm an energetic person, but this list of habits is something that I have refined over the course of the last couple of years. And if I do this thing, these, these things, it's almost like I can't have a bad experience at life. Yeah, bad I agree things with that. happen. Bad things happen. I'm not saying I'm impervious to them, but my ability to sort of process them, live in it, be with them, and move on is just—it's—it's it's orders of magnitude greater than if I wasn't doing those things. Yeah, I agree. And not only that, it compounds. So if you sleep well, sleeping is critical for rejuvenating the brain, the body, reducing disease, inflammation, and so on. You do this every day. It's compounding the health of your body, that's just sleep. Yeah. So if you also then do a little bit of exercise, do a little bit of something creative, uh, suddenly you build up this you know, healthy life and a healthy body of work and healthy relationships and, and so on. Yeah, it's, I'm, and I that works. It. I love that, you, like, I don't really, I talk about having daily habits, but I haven't really gone to depth and I haven't found anyone else who has this, like, I just need to check the box because I know what I need not just to survive, but thrive. This is literally a thrive list for me. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting know. because a lot of people, 
everything's related to this. So a lot of people, and I, I'm like this too, I'll wake up at three in the morning and have anxious thoughts. Like, oh my gosh, this business I started is gonna fail, or I just insulted this person I didn't mean to, or blah, 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 oh, this thing is preventing me from sleeping. So it's all related. Like you can't, again, you can't let anxiety drain you at three in the morning or take away energy from tomorrow or whatever. So I always, so it's again, applying all these things to this practice, I, I say to myself, because I know I'm gonna do this practice the next day, I say to myself, okay, I'm anxious right now. I know I usually get anxious at three in the morning. I'm gonna schedule to talk to myself about this exact issue at three in the afternoon instead. And by the time three in the afternoon comes around, I've already done everything that I need to do for the day, you know, all these, this, this practice, yep. and I'm no longer anxious about the things I was anxious about. Or if I am, so what? I just wrote a thousand pages, I exercised, I ate well, hanging out with my friends. What's there to be anxious about? I call those, um, well actually, I got this from Brene Brown, she calls them gremlins. And uh, Ariana uh, Huffington, obviously, Ariana calls them her obnoxious roommate. Just <laughs> these voices. And I so, think, so think about who you just said. Yeah. Two amazingly successful women who always seem like, you know, positive. Like, I love both of them. And always got their shit together. Yeah. yeah. And yet they've got those gremlins probably every day. Yeah. And I think it's so hard to admit that it's just part of life. That's, yeah. that's what it means to be human because if we didn't have those things we wouldn't run from you know in the jungle when the when if the bush just rustles you know there might be something behind there you have to run as fast as possible if you wait to see what's behind there it's too late the lion's eating yes. you so so you had to develop that that but now we live in this modern society where there's no you know we're not around lions or tigers or whatever but we still have those gremlins because it's only been you know, 50,000 years of 4 yeah. million years of evolution. We're literally hardwired for those things. Yes, so it's yeah. a good thing to have those, but now we have to deal with them in a modern sense. Yeah, and I, I still I think it's fascinating that our lists are so similar. I think it's quite quite cool. Um, so I'm gonna get back to your startups. You had, that sounds pretty catastrophic, a couple $10 million hits, um, some lightweight ones. Let's talk about the flip side of that, what's something that you feel like you had a reasonable amount of success and you enjoy doing of your 20 startups? Uh, I'll tell you, what I really, it's not necessarily that I enjoy it, but where I've had better success is not doing startups. <laughs> like I really hate startups. It's so glamorized it's, and it's so much hard fucking work. It's hard work, it's not that much fun. Uh, it's usually stress until the day you sell the company. I always tell people as soon as they start a company to sell the company. Like, <laughs> there's no, don't tell me like you're gonna be selling shoes online for 80 years because you have this life mission to sell shoes online. Like, even Tony Shea sold to Amazon ultimately. So, uh, uh, so what I found was, again, I kind of have my motto which is that I'm an idiot. So for whatever I want to do, there's always other people smarter than me at it. So for instance, um, when I do a startup now, so I have a startup that I'm involved in, I hired a CEO for my startup because he was a better CEO than me. I'm a really poor manager of people and I'm not good, I'm not, you know, to, to run a good startup, maybe you need to have 60% of your decisions work out okay and 40% not so okay. I'm more the other way around. I'm like a 40-60. So I'll hire someone to, be, to run the company who's a 60-40. And uh, uh, so, I, so, so where I've had better success is at investing. So I always try to find a CEO, I don't even care about the company, 
I'll try to find a CEO who's done a similar company before and had success with it, because he knows what he's doing. I'll try to find other investors going alongside of me that are smarter than me, because they're gonna do all the due diligence and they're gonna be responsible for being on the board and being smarter than me. And, that, and, and what sounds like a cheap valuation, because if these smart investors and this smart CEO is allowing a cheap valuation, then I'm in, I feel like I'm in the family. And uh, just those three things. I, I could care less what the company does. I'm in companies all, all across the universe. And that's where I've had ultimately uh, more success than, than starting up companies. And, and I make, you know, I've done well with books. I, my current startup where I hired a CEO is doing well. And, well, you let's know. Let's talk about the books part. Because I think, um, you know, bear with me on this for a second. So, again, the, the people who are listening and watching right now, they're primarily creative and entrepreneurial type or want to have more of that in their life. They're leaning in. The future of freelancing is, is very, very ripe. Something like 40% of people in the working age are going to have a side gig. Well, and let me, let me explain on that a second. I'm sorry to always interrupt no, you. No, no, it's all right. But people don't realize this is almost by definition, you have to have a side gig. Yeah. So think about what ha has happened in the past 20 or 30 years. Suddenly, I mean, this has been happening for 50 years, really, but there's been this software explosion, but it's really mostly happened since the internet hit every single company. And every line of code ever written, and so I'm a programmer by background, that's my actual training, and my first job was as a computer programmer. So every line of code ever, and I've started software companies, I'm invested in software companies, every line of code ever written is to make sure someone can be fired. Like that's just the definition of software, is you're automating something. So if you automate something, yeah, a little bit of it is making, you know, doing something that has never been done before, but at the same time, you're probably eliminating someone who used to do it. So uh, uh, what's going to be the classic example is, you know, autonomous driving cars, you, software is replacing a driver, like that's incredible. But even like basic accounting software, remove the accountants. Um, Amazon has destroyed the bookstores. It, it, you know, people used to be worried, oh, Barnes & Noble is gonna destroy all the indie booksellers. Well, Amazon totally destroyed these big monolithic bookstores and might even destroy Walmart. So, and that's software. Yeah. So, and now there's robots stacking you know, the shelves at Amazon and Walmart. So that's replacing workers. So yeah. every software, and, and many other things too, it's not just software, but like all AI, robotics, but this is all software, 3D printing is eliminating a lot of construction. So all of these massive and great and positive innovations for society has a downside too, and I'm not saying this in a political way, it's just a reality, is that jobs get eliminated. So yeah. think of yourself as, or, or the listener can think of themselves as a business, and a business usually has many lines of product, uh, SKUs or whatever you want to call them, and one, for, if you have a full-time job, that's your one line, yeah. but you probably need five, six lines. Yeah, the way I talk about it is if the, our parents had one job, we have five, and the next generation will have five at the same time, and I, I'm realizing that I, I am a hyphen. I have like at least five things that I'm, I'm all, you know, obviously the founder and CEO of Creative Live, longtime professional creative. I still shoot campaigns for some of the world's top brands, although I'm doing more of the former than the latter right now because of deciding to focus, but I'm also an angel investor. I'm like blah, blah, blah. And what I'm finding is that the world is full of hyphens. We don't have a way to talk about, what do you do? Uh, I'm a this and a this and a this. Yeah, and it's it gets weird, getting right? weird and shitty. It's just, how do you describe yourself? Well, it's interesting you use the, the number five because 
in the past, let's say, two or three weeks, I've read two completely different studies. They had nothing to do with each other. One was a study, how many projects should a creative be working on simultaneously? Um, if it's too little, the idea is they might, you know, kind of create themselves into a hole and not have a way to back up and, you know, re rejuvenate yeah. the producers. I mean, if it's too many, they might not be able to focus on the, the, the projects they love the most. And then the other study was um, how many projects at work should an employee be working on if they want to stay motivated. So completely different, done by completely different people, different scientists or whatever. And the, both studies came up with the number five. So five turns out to be this ideal number of like if you're creative, work on a book, work on a podcast, work on a show, work on you know whatever. Uh, and if you're an employee, work on this program, that program, work on something for the workplace, and, and so on. I'm dying for this research. Can you, will you share it with me? Sure. One okay. of them, I will tell you where I heard of them. Okay. So one of them was told to me by Stephen Dubner, who wrote Freakonomics, mm -hmm. uh, and we do a podcast together called Question of the Day. So he brought this up. And another is in Charles Duhigg's new book, uh, Better, Faster, Smarter, uh, which is about motivation. So I heard them from completely different sources. Super cool. Yeah. And I've been using that line for some time now. And the, I used to talk about it like it was at some point in the future, but it's clearly moving even faster than I had projected. And I describe myself as a hyphen. Like, how, what do you do? And I, I, I literally shape my, when someone says, oh, you know, this is a crass version, but what do you do? Um, I shape it based on like the audience because, oh yeah. man, I'm not going to tell these people all the blah, blah, blah. If I'm in, uh, you know, one particular thing, I was like, oh yeah, I'm a photographer and director. It's really the primary career I've had. And then I started a little startup, but that's, you know, and just because it's easy. But every time I'm thinking, and I'm this, and I'm this, and I'm this, and it used to be, or I think it still is, it's weird and painful. And for the listener or the watcher who, who's paying attention right now, I want you to know that that's okay. That's literally one of the reasons we started Creative Live is to provide you with the opportunity to acquire those skills, build community around the things that you love doing. And I know one thing for sure, and I'd like to get your take on this, that the sort of the classic education system is completely incapable of providing structure and opportunity to learn things at that speed. Just, it just, the system doesn't work like that. It's designed around the factory and you push things through very, very slowly. So. Well, I, well a, great, a great example is, again, we talked a little bit about experimenting. Like the key, like you've experimented with a lot of different formats with all, the, all these video shows yes. that you're doing. Mm -hmm. I, I've seen them and, and watched the arcs in the past few years. And you, know, you look at like all these great companies like, um, even Google, they experimented with different ways to make money, they experimented with different types of algorithms. A lot of it is about, a lot of success is about knowing how to make these tiny experiments. And that's something that's never taught in school. You're not supposed to experiment. Because you know, if you might fail. Right, right. and, and, and all, you might fail and you won't be standardized. So my kids have to take a standardized test every year to make sure they're fitting in with all the other people in the state or the Don't country or whatever. Started. Don't get me started. Right, and, and <laughs> where did this model come from? It came from after Prussia, so the history of this is it came, Prussia was really disappointed that they lost to Napoleon. So they created this, and it was like everybody was marching out of order, nobody had to, knew how to use the same weapons, and so they created a standardized school system so that everybody would learn the same things, and they actually made a better army out of it. So England, looked at this and said, you know, we basically own countries all around the world, but we need to kind of make it like 
they almost computerized it in the 1800s where we need to take a clerk from India and put him in you know, Barbados and have him do the same skills. So they, created, they took this standardized system. And then Horace Mann in the US said, okay, this is, looks great. We're gonna make a standardized school system as well. So we're gonna teach physics, math, English, Latin, whatever in 40 minute increments. And that's what we have today. And why not just a school where people experiment, which is really the way people learn and fail and come back and learn more and succeed. Yeah. Like people kind of throw out the standardized stuff when they enter the real world and start experimenting, if they can do it. Experimentation is clearly a paradigm for you, for the people that I know that are successful. Um, and not just sort of at the entrepreneurial company starting level, but as you talked about, as, a, as an independent creative, as a freelancer, you, you're working on five projects. Not all five projects go exactly the way you want. Some are wildly successful, some like, oh, this one's sort of mediocre, this one's kind of crappy. And there's this process that I love about realizing that it hasn't killed you. That these small failures, failing, fa failing fast is a classic line, um, that it makes you stronger. And you know, I was talking to the crew here earlier, I've probably been on a thousand sets, a thousand photo sets. And you start to know what great ones look like, feel like, run like. And there certainly is a pattern recognition, and you can have wildly successful ones, and you can still even have, oh man, that shoot didn't go like I wanted it to today. And yet, the act of repeating something over and over, like, it, it is the best form that I know. Repetition and stamina are so overlooked in our culture as valuable. Totally. Huge, huge, that's, where I'm, that's, how, that's why I'm here. Well, you must know the classic, and I just love this quote, the classic Bruce Lee quote. Do you know this quote about repetition? Yes, repetition breeds skill. Wait, repetition breeds skill, repetition breeds skill, repetition breeds skill, isn't it? Uh, I want to know who did say that, because okay. that sounds even better. But Bruce Lee said, I don't fear the man who knows 10,000 kicks. I fear the man who learned one kick 10,000 times. So, Because awesome. that's, I that think guy I'm, will kill you. I literally think I'm quoting myself. <laughs> I think I- Then I, I, like, yeah. I like your quote. I'm going to steal that. Repetition breeds skill, and then I, I put it up there three times and post it on Facebook and I think it went crazy. Um, that's a good one. I'm gonna take your Bruce Lee one. You can have my repetition breed skill. All right. So let's go back to you now. We've, I, I love our discussion, by the way. I, I, let's talk, you've, you've had 20 startups. We've got some successful and some failed. You realize that you don't love startup life because X, Y, Z. It does have a really sexy veneer on it. Um, I personally love love the environment because it puts, it puts me in the company of very, very smart people who are there, you, you don't necessarily go to a startup because you want to just chill out. I'm looking for other people who want to work really hard, um, who will put them, themselves out there because it requires a lot of vulnerability, I think, to be successful in these environments. And, and there's generally, for me, in the startup world, I am excited about things that have social good and in the Creative Live case, for example, trying to make the world a more creative place, help people live their dreams. I love that environment, but I could absolutely see how there's a lot of bullshit around there. And for you, for example, you've decided that investing and building companies, but building them at a distance is the, the healthy, great thing for you. What about, is, is there a future where we all should lean into the freelance life? Um, I'm, I, I think that that's an important part of our future, but I, I don't believe that there is, you can paint everybody with a big fat brush. How do you think about it? I don't know, because again, just looking at the data, um, income, and income's usually kind of mostly measured from income from big corporations because that's where most employees 
most Americans work at a big corporation, uh, income has gone down versus inflation for about 23 years in a row now. So, I mean, incomes go up, but you know, I think the average 18 to 35 year old made something like $36,000 a year in 1993, and now they make $33,000, you know, adjusted for inflation. So, so incomes in general are going down, and it's, the reason is what's happened since 1993, this massive explosion of efficiency because of a, a great innovation called the internet. So that's gonna just continue. There's no reason it's not gonna continue. We had the internet, then we had mobile, now we're gonna have things like virtual reality. That's gonna take, you know, millions more jobs away. So. I don't know, I think you're gonna have to, this is not necessarily a bad thing, most people don't really like their jobs that much. Some yeah. people do, I actually loved my first job in the city, um, but eventually you feel stagnant at it, in part because of this phenomenon that's happening, and in part because just in general, people don't wanna do the same thing for 50 years anymore. So I think there are many types of freelance jobs you could do and learn in a relatively short period of time. Yes. So I love to me that is so exciting. And again, it did is I'm fortunate that Creative Five plugs into that. I wish it was this perfect foresight. It was a little bit more opportunistic. Like, oh my gosh, this is what I love. I have an opportunity to create this and add value to other people's lives. Boom. The freelance economy, all these things dovetailing. I, I wasn't really tuned in hardcore to those macroeconomic uh, issues, but I'm proud of what it is that what we're building. So I'm glad that you're leaning into that as well. I think, and, that and I think being creative, I think people used to think, oh, you're going to be an artist. Or, you know, where are you going to be a waiter or a waitress as well? So like, I think now though, because of these innovations, you can make a living doing what you love to do. And I'm not saying go out there and find your passion first. You could, there's pe many, many people have many passions. There's no one passion. But uh, let's say you like writing. It used to be you had to sit around and wait for a publisher to also like your writing. Like you had to write something that some kid straight out of college picked up off the pile and said, wow, this guy's amazing and, and you get lucky. And there's only four or five pub major publishers now because they all sort of merge. There's no indie publishers anymore. But now you can just self-publish on Amazon. And look at all the amazing um, books that have just exploded out of self-publishing on Amazon. Like I don't know if you saw the Martian with, with Matt Damon, yeah. that book was originally yeah. self-published on Amazon, and, and, and then I think book. Random House picked it up. Like, like self-publishing became sort of the minor leagues for, for Random House, and they yeah. picked it up. And not, whether or not you like this book, Fifty Shades of Grey was self-published. Then I forgot who picked it up, but it sold 20 million copies. How many millions did the movie make? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's, it's, now, not everyone's going to be one of those two books, but I also know people who literally write like a romance novel a month or write a science fiction book a month or write a self-help book a month and they start to it starts to build up you start to make many streams of income and you build up your email list you can you can announce your email list oh a new book's out and now you can make a living as a writer so i mean if i had self-publishing back when i was 18 years old i definitely would never have gone to i would not have made it to college i would have just been too busy like uploading stuff to Amazon all day long. And that's just what I would have done the rest of my life, you know, with some variation on it. All right, let's talk a little bit more tactically for a second, because I love all, all of those things, self-publishing, the, the opportunity, there's no gatekeepers, it's the first time in the history of the world where you don't require permission uh, to share your work at scale. I've been singing that tune for a while, I love to hear other people sing it too. Um, tactically, what do you feel like, what, um, as an investor, as someone who has really spent some time in the startup scene, part of your job is to see around the corner. You mentioned AI, you've mentioned driving cars, but you've mentioned all in passing. 
just in a very, like in this context, what's around the corner? Uh, you know, it's a great question because a lot of people have lost their minds and hearts and reputation trying to predict the future. So no one could really predict the future. Of course. But, so I'll just talk about what I see in the present and then people can decide. So what we saw in the past was this amazing, maybe for the first time ever, a single trillion dollar opportunity in the 90s, which was the internet, which we're all using every day now, all day long. Then in the 2009, 2010, suddenly this amazing thing called the App Store opened up, you know, for both Apple and Google and so on. So mobile and smartphones, with, combined with the App Store, became the next trillion dollar opportunity. Now we're all using, like my, my kids don't even use their computers anymore, they just use mobile. And so what's, is there another trillion dollar opportunity happening? And what I'm seeing is, quietly, all these companies, not even so quietly actually, Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon, they're pouring million, billions of dollars into virtual reality. So Oculus Rift was bought by Facebook for two billion, even before they had a product. Now they have a product that's coming out, I've used it, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I used it last week. Oh yeah? It, Blew me away. It blew I was you away. Running around these worlds of disintegrating castles, jumping from thing to thing. I fell on time. And I mean, you're actually doing it. Yes. Like your brain, all the neurochemicals are firing as opposed to a video game. You're falling. I got the sensation of falling. Yeah. Oh my God. Fucking goggles. Like on. if you're afraid of heart, uh, if you're afraid heights. of heights, yeah. not afraid of hearts. If you're afraid of heights, I'm afraid of hearts. But if you're afraid of heights uh, and you like have to look down in a VR world, you'll get scared. Yeah. As opposed to a video game where, okay, like I'm looking down you know, one neurochemical's firing, but it's not enough. Like everything is firing in your brain with a virtual reality. So what happens now? Okay, obviously video gaming is gonna be dominated by virtual reality. That's, you know, multi, For sure. you know, $20 billion industry, $10 billion industry. Then um, real estate totally is gonna get disrupted. I'm gonna, instead of going around with some lying real estate agent, no offense, uh, <laughs> you're, you're gonna just be able to put on your, the headset. And, and I know the people making these, these environments already. I've already visited them and checked it out. Like you're gonna be able to visit every uh, real estate space in a VR environment. Then you can make a decision. Okay, now I'll see this one instead of having to go to each one. Um, you go to the process. mall and shop in a virtual reality. You can um, you know, go to an event. Pay-per-view is, again, another $50 billion industry. Pay-per-view is gonna switch completely to virtual reality. So I think this is easily the next, it's already, let's yeah. say, a $50 billion opportunity, and I think it's on its way to becoming a trillion dollar opportunity. So virtual reality is where I would place my bets, not even as an investor, but as a creative too. Like, how do you go about um, designing or thinking about virtual reality environments? Uh, or, you know, what are other opportunities that I didn't just spout off that maybe nobody's thinking of? So these are sort of things in terms of another creative prompt, like I would start thinking in, in this, this direction. I'm not personally doing it because yeah. I like to write. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not writing virtual reality, I'm just writing. Um, so I was at South By, which is where I was playing with Oculus Rift. Um, and I feel like the media really sold the shit out of virtual reality. And it was everywhere. I mean, I went to the virtual reality space. It was a whole space dedicated to all the manufacturers had their stuff. Um, Friend of mine, Robert Scoble, was there. Just like, just he just left his job at Rackspace. Now he's at Upload VR. Just, just, I didn't know that. Yeah. I only know I know yeah. Robert from yeah. Rackspace for sure. So yeah, he just uh, left and, and joined Upload. The point is that more than virtual reality, what people were talking about, in my experience, 
could be my friend circle, could be you know what what I was doing. We all we have a lot of same friends. Snapchat. You know, I'm telling you, it was it was more popular. I do I 100% agree with you that virtual reality is the around the corner. That's the next you know trillion dollar idea, et cetera, et cetera. But I found it fascinating that the real story for me at South by was Snapchat. You know, I see everybody using Snapchat. I don't. I this is. A, I hate when people say this. I don't disagree with you. Yes. <laughs> As opposed to saying I agree with you. Um, Snapchat's clearly big. That's all my kids use. My yeah. 17-year-old was just Snapchatting me yesterday and blah, whatever. Um, and I just got a Snapchat account probably thanks to our mutual friend Gary Vaynerchuk. God. So he just convinced me Gary. to get Snapchat. We're, we're there now. We're on it. Thank you. I love you, brother. <laughs> but, but I feel like, uh, I don't know, I feel like I'm a little old for Snapchat. Like most of my friends don't really use Snapchat, whereas 10 years from now, all of my friends will be using virtual reality. So, but yes, doing stuff for Snapchat sounds great. As a creative, here's why I like it, because it's so low weight. There's no anxiety around just doing something very, yes. very simple. Boom. And it's the engagement. Almost 100% of the people who pay attention to me look at every single thing, every single five-second thing that I send out there, which is crazy engagement, right? Versus a tweet, which if you have, you know, 350,000 followers gets seen by... 3,500 3, people yeah. or something like that. So it, 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 the scale, I think, is interesting. The engagement's really interesting. The low weight, high creative, the fact of a story that's just always sort of evolving. Um, anyway, I, I don't not love the other things, but I am admittedly intrigued uh, about it. So I just, Well, I think everything is related to like what you said, story, so storytelling. Yeah. If you could find more media for storytelling, I don't think virtual reality signals the end of writing on a page, for instance, um, more books are read every year than the year before, despite all these amazing things that are happening. Uh, so I still believe, you know, I was actually, I feel like we're constantly like name dropping, but I was talking to someone from Amazon this morning because I, I talk a lot with the self-publishing group because I, I self-publish now. I didn't always do this, but I self-publish almost all of my books now. So I'm always, whether they like it or not, I'm always giving feedback. And uh, uh, you know, one of the amazing things about self-publishing is you can throw out the standard defi definition of a book because that was defined by publishers and bookstores. Yeah. Bookstores and publishers wanted you to write a 60,000 word, 200 to 250 page book. Now you can write a 10 page book or a 5,000 page book, it doesn't matter. So it could be sold, in, most are sold in digital form now. I think they've just switched, the majority is digital. And uh, so, so I encourage everybody I know to, write your story down because now you can finally tell your story to your children, your grandchildren, your friends. Uh, just write it. It doesn't take that long and it's good practice for communicating and it's better than a business card for telling people who you are. And I encourage people to, to self-publish. There's no, there's no friction to self-publishing. Just upload to Amazon a Microsoft Word document and you're done. So that, it's that simple. Like yeah. The, I, I wrote in a weekend. I gave myself a challenge about maybe two years ago, I forgot when it happened, maybe three years ago, two and a half, I wanted to write and self-publish in a weekend a novel. So I did like a 30-page novel, and, and it was great. Then it sold, I did it under a pen name, totally anonymous, and it sold like a few thousand copies because I promoted it. You can promote something for free for a little bit on Amazon, then people, then it gets high-ranked and you, people see it. And I did, I did what's called newsjacking, so I newsjacked a, uh, what was a trending topic in the news that weekend and wrote a fiction about it and sold a few thousand copies, got a check, and then you know, never really sold again after that, but it was fun. You could just wow. do it in a weekend. Th that could be quite lucrative. 
Yeah, I know people who make good money doing that. Wow, Newsjack fiction. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. So what? Um, what's got you excited uh, outside of VR and outside? Actually, let me put a, a different guardrail. What's got you excited outside of technology? Full stop. Uh. You know, and I mean, I'm always excited about writing, which I don't view as technology. I think that's an art form unto its own, just like the discussion we had about photography. When you told me to go up to a person and establish a relationship with them and tell your story to evoke a connection with them, again, that's storytelling, it's relationships, it's how to build a picture. Um, it's not necessarily about technology. It doesn't matter the technology. You didn't say At get all. this fancy camera. At all. You said, evoke a response yeah, and connect with another human being. So it had nothing to do with the equipment or the technology. So I think that's the important part of all of these things. Even virtual reality, you were saying you were j jumping through castles and you were afraid. Like that had nothing, we, yeah, f thankfully there's technology behind that. You're not actually jumping around <laughs> castles that are falling apart. But uh, the technology is just a side effect of, of this thing that's having fun for you. So, so that's what's got me excited is storytelling, having precedence over uh, just medium. working for the master, you know, the big corporation or, you know, having one thing to do all your life. Like, like technology actually doesn't excite me that much. It's the fact that now we have more choices of what we want to do. That is what excites me. Yeah, the fact that I would say the number one question I get with a young photography crowd, and I mean young not in age, but in uh, exposure to photography as a, as a vocation, a hobby, uh, however you want to call it, just as in photography, is what kind of camera to use. And I, I, I don't judge that, but what I'm aware of is that it's very much a, it should be a conversation about what's a great picture, how a great picture is made, what is a story, how do you capture that in one moment. And the way that people access that in, 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 in the earliest experience of it is through the device that makes it possible. Yeah. So it's like a, I never get angry at people who ask me about what kind of camera should I buy. And they really just want an answer. I could say, the one that takes pictures of the fucking moon, it's $10 million, that's, that's what you should buy because they would give me this crazy look. Or uh, here, you should get this Lego camera. It's a great starting camera. At both ends of the spectrum, it doesn't really matter. The fact that they're interested in photography, and I know this is a great access point, it, it literally doesn't matter. I, I just have a couple standard answers because it's easy and my answer doesn't matter. Because if they grab a camera, almost any camera, and they take enough pictures, they will engage with photography on the next level. So in the same way you're talking about writing, it's not really about the technology. Storytelling is still a core thing. That's ultimately what I'm gonna, sure, doesn't, doesn't, any camera any piece of technology that's going to help you take pictures is better than not having something. So I'm going to run with that for a second. How do you yeah. think about that? So, so, so two things. One is storytelling, whether it's with words or really even more primal with pictures, like you're saying, this has been around in our civilization, in our culture for, let's say, 70,000 years. Not our culture, but our species for yes. 70,000 years. They find, you know, etchings on a wall, a picture on a wall from 100,000 years or 70,000 years ago. And it's because this is how... Uh, our successful ancestors, as opposed to the unsuccessful <laughs> ones who didn't ancestor anything, our successful ancestors passed down information from generation to generation, and they did it by developing storytelling. And it was started with pictures, then with words, and, and later on. So, so again, what was important there was, was story as opposed to the technology, because there was no technology. 
uh, it was the club or the fire or the stick to right. scratch on the cave wall. Yeah, yeah or, or some sort of oral tradition mm -hmm. or whatever. So uh, I was once having lunch with a friend of mine. He was saying he wanted to start creating you know, viral YouTube videos and putting ads on them. And I'm, I'm like, well, what's stopping you? Why didn't you start yet? And he said, well, I don't have the video camera equipment yet. And I'm like, you know, you have like the latest iPhone. So the video camera on that is, I don't even know. I just made it up. So maybe I was lying to them. I said that's a thousand times better than like, let's say the best video camera from 20 years earlier. Oh, for sure. So it's 4K, I mean, it's right. like, so, yeah, so it's So it's better than the video camera, you know, George Lucas shot Star Wars on, or, you know, the Godfather was shot on. You've got a, this video camera in your pocket. Yep. So, so just go out there and, and make videos. You know, you look at like successful YouTubers, I'll pick one randomly, Michelle Phan, who's all over the place now, her, you know, she does these makeup videos. Mm -hmm. She did like 60 videos with just her iPhone or whatever until she got a big hit and then she had some money to buy better equipment. So that's what you gotta do, it's just storytelling. The power of story is, yeah, it's, uh, there's story, narrative. I feel like that is a thing that uh, is so useful in so many applications. If you're raising money, you tell a story. If you're telling your parents, you're getting out of, uh, <laughs> you wanna get out of school one day, you need to make up a good story. If you're trying to um, share an idea, if, it's, if you're a grandfather trying to share an idea with a grandson, you tell a story because stories are sticky. They are. Those yeah, are people remember them. Yeah, we're genetically wired to remember stories. Is that the same? Are we in the same sort of crocodile brain that we were in uh, 70,000 years ago, you think? Uh, definitely, because look, you know, our, I don't know if you call it species or genus or whatever, it's been around four, six million years, who knows how long. Humans have only been, let's say modern civilizations only been around for 10,000 years when we started harvesting wheat. Other than that, we were just like the same thing for, for millions of years, you know, just with gradual change. So it's not like, um, our brain suddenly said, oh, okay, James is living in a city now with big buildings and everything's pretty safe. We're gonna cut, we're gonna cut him a pass on every evolutionary restriction we had on him for <laughs> four million years. He's, he's free. That's why, that's why we're, that's why as a society we get, we eat a lot is because it used to be if our ancestors found something with sugar that was sweet, you it would it. just keep consuming it because you don't know the next time um, you would run into something sweet. Now we have, you know, sweet food all over the grocery store so we just eat and consume because that's like our brain is telling us oh my god you just found you're kidding you never me. You just know found, you're like, not going to be around food yeah you just found a cookie you gotta keep eating them <laughs> don't don't waste this opportunity you have a twinkie so it's amazing what do people know about oh, sorry what do people not know about you that if they found out would be surprised well i'm pretty open in my writing with everything like i write about all my failures i write about horrible things that I've done and good things and bad things, mostly bad things because nobody really cares about good things that much. So there's not much I haven't actually written about, to be honest. Um, I don't know. Really? Yeah, I've written about every, wow. I mean, I write every day. I think that's motivation for you guys to check out James's work. Actually, let's do that while you're, like, what's a great place to, to find you? You mentioned jamesaltitude.com. Is that where you yeah, park yourself? Yeah, that's kind of like, Home the base. top of the pyramid, yeah. And then I, uh, it, of my books, maybe Choose Yourself is my favorite, or the Choose Yourself stories, just kind of more 
storytelling. That's where I was going to go next. So you have a, you've written 17 books, 18 books? Uh, yeah, about 18. So favorite, Choose Yourself? Choose Yourself, yeah. Or, or the Choose Yourself stories, which I think of as more um, fun for me to write. And Choose Yourself was a little bit more analytical, but still story-driven. What's the basis? Tell the people at home. What's the book about? Uh, it's basically about what we've been talking about, which is that you, don't, you no longer need permission from, let's say, a publisher or a photography magazine or a fashion house or your boss you could, or you know, a TV network to put on a show. You're making a show here without a TV network uh, choosing active, you. Actively not, actively walking away from the right. TV network. You could choose yourself now in almost any field you think about. So, and that's kind of on the almost economic side, but it's also what we talked about with this practice of, in order to prepare yourself for that, you kind of have to be physically, emotionally, mentally, you know, almost spiritually in good shape every day. So that prepares yourself to kind of become this choose yourself warrior almost, although I don't use that word in the book, but that's how I think about it now. You've heard the question, I think we've also talked about something being trendy, uh, all kinds of trends that we've referenced in this conversation. This, the basis of this question is a little bit trendy, which is if you know, what would you tell your 20-year-old self or whatever? So I'm not interested in your 20-year-old self. I mean, I am. I'm interested in your 20-year-old self. But I'm interested in your yesterday self. What would you tell, not your 20-year-old self, what would you tell yesterday, knowing what you know right now, and if you could go back and have a, actually, I'm mandating that you go back and have a conversation with yourself and give yourself a piece of advice, what would it be? Uh, I wouldn't, I would never advise my previous self. Like he, you only can learn from experience. So go fuck yourself. Do, do whatever <laughs> go, you want. Go stick your hand in the tiger's mouth. Try one more. I, mean, you, you, I got both my hands, so it worked out. <laughs> so whatever. I'm here today. And so my prior self didn't screw up that badly. I mean, made me look like this. But <laughs> Do you have that practice of what's the worst that can happen? I, I think, think that's, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting way of coping with risk with putting yourself out Yes and no. I think if you're always focused on the, what the worst can happen, like if you're totally stoic about you know, your situations. You become what you think about. Yeah, you get a little pessimistic. I think you always have to say, okay, but what's the, what's the reverse side of that? Like, what's the worst can, that can happen and get me to a point where it really isn't that bad? Worst that could happen, let's say, is, I don't know, there's a lot of bad things that can happen. Let's say I lose all my money or I lose a family member. This is a horrible thing. But, uh, you know, I've now seen both situations and I've come through and, you know, you just, again, get back to this practice. It turns out people have sort of a base level of happiness no matter what happens to them. Maybe they get sad for a while, but then they go back to their base. Now, my base, I think, is pretty low. So I try to, I try to ebb, you know, kind of simmer a little higher than my, than my base. That's fascinating. Um, when you were talking about startups earlier, what you were really talking about is tolerance for risk. Yeah. Right? Yes yeah. and no. I think it's tolerance for risk and ability to mitigate risk. So I don't think entrepreneurs take risks, actually. Look at Google. Larry Page and Sergey Brin did not want to start a, a multi-hundred billion dollar company. They tried to sell for a million dollars to Yahoo. They, they, they wanted to stay in graduate school. Yahoo said no to them. So they were trying to say, look, I'm, we're grad students. This is a great way to mitigate risk so we could be entrepreneurs later. Let's make a million dollars right now as grad students, finish our PhDs so we learn more, and then we'll start our big company. 
But everybody rejected them. Michael, uh, Yahoo rejected them and Excite rejected them. So finally they said, okay, we'll just do this company, Google. And you know, so they tried to take risk off the table. Uh, I think the best entrepreneurs out there try to take risk off as, as quickly as possible. That's fascinating. So how do you, when you are a, let's try and get to the person who's on the other end of this recording, audio or video, and you want to leave your day job. You are, you work at, you're a coder at Amazon and you want to become a designer. Yeah. We can, we can do a couple personas, but let's just use, use this. Your, your name is um, Stephanie. You're a coder at Amazon and you want to leave to become a designer. You design in your free time. Um, how do you mitigate risk? And or, or, or A, do you or, or B, how do you? Just you pretend you're Stephanie for a second. Okay, so first off, Stephanie shouldn't quit her job so fast. Uh, I think a lot of people feel like, oh, I've got a great idea. Now I'll raise venture capital money and quit my job. That's not how it works. So uh, for my very first company, I started it. Uh, I stayed at my full-time job for 18 months uh, before I left full-time for my my own company. I had a dozen employees at my own company and I stayed at my full-time job for 18 months because I was so afraid of risk actually. And I had baby. It wasn't like I had a lot of free time. I made sure on the job I just would squeeze in all the free time. I wouldn't go to lunch. Uh, I wouldn't watch TV at night. Uh, I was just very focused on using all my or most of my free time, not all of it, but most of my free time to do the, have the escape plan from the job. Uh, I think also important to have plan B, plan C, plan D. So plan A is the full-time job, but plan B might be, okay, I'm going to design some websites or maybe I'll go to some local stores and design some logos for them. I might do stuff for free so I get testimonials. I might, um, I'm going to read every, I'm going to read every book in the bookstore on design so I learn more and kind of learn how to recognize the styles of all the different designers. You know, this is very critical. People, you know, it takes a long time to learn, you know, enough that you become an expert. But you can make money before you become an expert, but you probably shouldn't jump until you're you know, close to expert. Is it, how unsexy is that, but how critical? I, I'm saying the same thing. I feel all the time like, I, I, I want to you know, try my hand at being a designer. I guess I got to go all in. I'm like, definitely do not do that. You need to figure out, A, like, you need to be doing this stuff on the side. It needs to be your side gig, your side hustle for a long time. Because yeah. And, Second of all, you need to be doing something you love. If you're just trying to make money, you're chasing a market opportunity. There are people who love that same opportunity. That if you're, you know, you're, uh, whatever it is, <laughs> you want to take pictures and you want to do it. Like, ah, oh, it's not something that's personally burning inside of you to do it. Just so you know, you're going to be competing with people who will kill right. to become a photographer. That's who your competition is. So in, you in, every area, in, yeah. every area, in every area, in literally any area, and and you you. Um, if you're not doing something that would scratch your own itch, then I would I actively dissuade people. So, what's your side hustle? What are you doing from your five to nine? Um, do you love it such that in five years, when you've been working eighty hours a week, are you still loving it? Because that's really what it's going to take to get something off the ground. And, and also, don't forget that uh, they can also combine things. They can combine the past and the future, for instance. So if you love design, be the first designer of beautiful virtual reality environments. Or if you love uh, writing, okay, now uh, you could write and make money off of 
fan fiction more easily, or you can write and make money uh, writing ten-page non-fiction books. And there's there's lots of ways now to you could you could write a popular blog and make some money. Most of those things could also be done while you're maintaining your job. And if you yeah. here's my question: the question that I ask people who ask that to me is. Are you, if, if you have to ask if it's the right time to jump, it's probably not. Right. It's maybe never the right time to jump. You know, also, you just stay and then at some point you figure, okay, now I've got enough income coming. By the way, what you do for a living might not be what you do for your life. So you might not make money at what you love doing, but you can make enough that it makes you happy and then you quit the job. I end up being a career uh, counselor and something that I really love, again, obviously really simple direct tie to Creative Live. What is the thing that people that pay attention to your work, your writing, what do they come to advice for you about? What's the most common question that you get asked? I think the most common question is, I'm feeling so depressed, I want to kill myself. How can, what should I do? <laughs> is, that get you, off the you, is that the law of attraction? <laughs> uh, it used to be the case. If you type in, I mean, I dare anybody right now to type it in. If you type in, in quotes, I want to die on Google, my site used to be number one. Now it's number two for most people because, uh, so many people were complaining that they put the, they, Google changed manually the results and put the National Suicide Hotline as the number one result. So wow. usually my website was the number one result. Wow. Not bragging about that. No, but. no, wow. So that is a common question. Another common question is how fast can I quit my job? Like people just don't like their jobs and so they want to quit. There's, there's not really an answer. Um, so people, because it's such a complicated question involving Everything from your passion to your how much you've pursued it to finances economics, and, yeah, yeah, finances. So uh, there's complicated answers depending on the situation, but that's the direction people should move. But it's not necessarily the thing they should do. What so, else? Give me one more example of very popular line of questioning you get. I'm fascinated by this. I think uh, is is how to be more creative. So I encourage people to write down ten bad ideas a day. So I can usually carry around a waiter's pad with me. I don't have any app on my phone for it. A waiter's pad, and uh, I write down ten ideas every morning just to start the day. It's again like a you know like a muscle. Like you could, it, they shouldn't be good ideas because you should plan on having mostly bad ideas. Just exercise that idea muscle. Don't store them anywhere. Throw it out afterwards. If something sticks with you, and you can write more ideas the next day. And then people say, oh, ideas are nothing. Executions, everything. They forget that execution is just a subset of ideas. Execution ideas are a subset of ideas. Well, now that you have this great idea, what are all your ideas to make this idea? Yeah, what are some, some execution ideas? <laughs> yeah, okay, now I'm going to outsource software to India. I'm going to outsource design to 99designs. I'm going to um, find products on Alibaba I could sell on Amazon. And bam, I've got WordPress and this and Amazon. And now you start to have a business. So it's execution. You still have to have ideas. I love that. I love the daily creative practice. Uh, you know, we, we weren't over my app earlier making making a something every day, a picture. Uh, I do consider this one of my creative outlets today, for example. Um, the daily practice, go ahead, sorry. You, you know, um, a lot of people also ask me what writing software to use, and people have all this fancy, like Scrivener, they have all these fancy softwares. I just, do, I do almost all my writing in a Facebook status update. Um, the danger is I can, my computer can go down and I'll lose what I wrote, but, uh, uh, so sometimes I cut and paste to the clipboard, but it makes my, it forces me to make my writing very spare. So I'm not, because it's just a status update, even if I'm writing a thousand words, I'm trying not to use any extra words or else people will stop scrolling in that update window. So uh, I just use the bare minimum possible. And that goes for like everything 
everything in my life. So just, I don't really want anything. And people say, well, how can you do that if you have kids, if you have this or that? I just structure my whole life so that I can have as, as little, everything is as bare and minimum as possible. Do you, a, would you say is that lean living and do you do so to, to maximize personal freedom? I just want to keep, maybe it's, yes, it's the personal freedom and it also allows me to explore my competences a little bit more. So if I don't, if I'm not kind of weighed down by, you know, this and this and this, I can focus on what I really like doing. Um, I think, the, have you ever had Nassim Taleb on here? I have not. Okay, so he told me um, the best job you could possibly get is night watchman because there's nothing to do and nobody's looking at you, like you're not being supervised as a night watchman. So you could just pursue what you wanna do in the night. And I kind of agree with that approach. Uh, so for me, I just, I think if you have your expectations as low as possible, it's very easy to exceed them, which might be a depressing way to look at things, <laughs> but that's just how I look at things. <laughs> I love it. Right, I gotta try and wrap a bow on this thing and, and uh, I do have another question to finish with though and it is what am I not asking that you either wished I would have or think I should have? I don't know. I mean, there is something. I'm not letting you out of this. This is the last question. Okay, let me let me think about it. Um, no, guys, let me think about it. No, it's so honestly, hard. honestly, <laughs> like I'm pretty happy with my life and I don't care if I die tomorrow either. So it's not, and not that I'm such like a great person that I'm like, okay, fine with everything. It's just that I don't really think of, I'm really dumb and I don't think about a lot of things. So I don't know what you should uh, no, be asking me. Think, I mean, you have, a, you have an audience of your own that you create for. You create for yourself, you share with them. Uh, you are a podcaster, you ask a lot of questions of other people. And have you asked yourself a question and shared it that you have uh, an open floor here to do it. Well, here's the question I ask myself, which is how do I continue reinventing? So I think if you write something every day, you might get in the danger of writing the same thing every day. And you see what the very big problem on the internet is that feedback is instantaneous. So you see right away, oh, people like this, they don't like this. But you can't just do what people like because that's, you're the writer or the, or the photographer or whatever, they're not. So you kind of just can't appease them or else you lose your own value as, as a creative. And I think that's really important to understand the process of reinvention. And for myself right now, I'm, I'm having a hard time reinventing to the next phase if there is one for me. So that's what I struggle with. I don't and know if that's a question I should be asking. No, that's about. great. But I think just so you know, you said there's a, for the next phase if there is one. I promise you, man, there is one. I'm I hope so. I'm looking forward. I look every day for it. So <laughs> I'm super excited to see what you create. It's um, this porn. sitting down and I'm just going to write <laughs> porn novels. Sitting down and talking to you has been a long time coming. We've been in the same circle for a long time. I appreciate it. You spending an hour and twenty minutes or whatever it has been. Thank you very much, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. All right, that about wraps it up. But before I let you go, I want to say, A, a huge thank you. B, let you know how to find me. I'm basically at Chase Jarvis all over the internet. 
on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I'm very active on Snapchat. You guys should check it. If that's a platform that you enjoy, uh, check me out there as well as all the other ones. It's a super important ask for you to share this. Also, uh, subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, and or Stitcher. And most definitely, if you're willing to put in a little bit of extra juice, please leave a review on iTunes. That helps make our podcast more visible. Last place that you can check it out and, and get some additional value is in my newsletter, which is chasejarvis.com slash VIP. That is where I put content out before it hits my social platforms. So that's sort of the insider track. Leave comments all over the internet for me. I will track them down and respond as best I can. And uh, again, huge thank you for listening to the podcast. And I'm looking forward to the next episode already. I hope you'll join me next time.